going to continue in our worship through the preaching of God's Word. And so I want to read two passages for us this morning. And so you can get out your copy of God's Word. It'll also be on the screens or in your bulletin as well. But our first is found in Galatians chapter 5. And it's verses 22 through 23. And it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Our second passage is found in 1 John chapter 3. It's 1 John 3, 16 through 18. And it says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. If you will bow with me in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your love, that your love compelled you to step into this broken world. Your love compelled you to die sacrificially on our behalf. Your love is what reconciles us um, who are sinners and into becoming your children. And so the Lord, your love is why we gather. So Lord, I pray that as we reflect on your love and the truth of your gospel, that it would compel us to love others as well. Lord, I pray for Pastor Kevin as he preaches that you'd give him clarity. And Lord, I pray for us that as we engage with your word, that you would give us hearts that are softened and ready to receive it, and that your Holy Spirit would shape us and conform us in the image of King Jesus. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ryan, and thank you for being here today. And let me take just a moment to welcome those who are in our overflow room, or if you are watching online right now or listening by podcast, uh, we want to welcome you as well. We are in week two today of this nine-week series that we have been in called The Me I'm Designed to Be. And all of our adults in all of our students in your small groups are going through this book. And if you have not joined one of our small groups, there is still time, but that door is closing quickly. If you're interested, we still have books available. Uh, you can go to our Welcome Center. You can grab a book and you can talk to them about how you can be a part uh, of one of our adult small groups. Uh, this series is on the fruit of the Spirit. You heard that passage read earlier by Ryan. Uh, if you missed last week, let me take just a few moments to catch you up to speed and give you some highlights of our overview of the fr fruit of the Spirit. Uh, number one, the fruit of the Spirit is different from the gifts of the Spirit. That is a completely different study. Uh, the Bible tells us that every follower of Christ is given at least one gift of the Spirit, but no one gets all the gifts of the Spirit. These to be, are to be used for the benefit of the church, uh, but we do not get all of the gifts. However, uh, all of us get the fruit of the Spirit. It is one fruit that is given to every follower of Christ. You heard the passage earlier. The word fruit there is singular. It's not fruits. All nine traits every Christian receives. Meaning you cannot say, well, I got the love trait, but not the patience trait. 
We may get them in different measures, but the Holy Spirit works all of those traits in our lives. Uh, Next, the fruit of the Spirit is completely a work of the Lord. In fact, when you look at the list, it seems overwhelming. I can't do this. You can't do this. Uh, This is especially true with the trait that we are talking about today. None of us in our own power can live out these characteristics. We cannot manufacture them. We cannot take pride in them. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we are able to see these traits become reality in our lives. However, the fruit of the Spirit is as well our responsibility. We cannot say, well, it's the Lord's fault that I don't have patience. The Bible is clear that we are to put ourselves in a position where God is able to do this work in our lives, which is why we are doing this study right now. And then finally, the fruit of the Spirit is a progressive work and will not be finished until we reach heaven. In other words, you can change your behavior like that, but not your character. The fruit of the Spirit is a work in our lives that is a spiritual transformation that takes place over time as the Holy Spirit does His work in our lives. So let's turn our attention to the first trait in the list that you heard Ryan read earlier. It said the fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. I think it is no accident that Paul put this virtue first in his list. This is the character trait that is the thread running through all the others. Love is the glue that binds every other virtue together. In fact, in another place, Paul tells us exactly that. In Colossians 3, Paul wrote, And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Meaning simply that one cannot be a follower of Christ and be devoid of love. A Christian who lacks love is a walking contradiction. To be a follower of Christ means this major mark is evident in your life. A Christian is someone who loves. Here's the problem for all of us, a major problem. Love has a lot of counterfeits. There are a lot of things running around out there that are imposters. They masquerade as love, but they're not love. In fact, love many times has taken the blame for actions that run right against the grain of biblical morality and do not in any way fit the biblical definition of love. I know, you're waiting on some examples. Okay, all you Gen Xers out there, are there any Gen Xers? Yes, join me. All right, a few Gen Xers. All you Gen Xers out there will surely remember Whitney Houston, who her personal life was an absolute mess, but she had the voice of an absolute angel. In 1985, she released a hit song entitled, Saving All My Love For You. It is written from the perspective of a single woman dating a married man 
And in the song, she hopes and hopes and hopes that he will leave his wife and family for her. And he tells her, he will one day. Just be patient. Just wait. And he tells her that he will leave his wife and family. And what is the justification he gives for this? Because, and I quote, love gives him the right to be free. Did you get that? He says in this song that the Christian virtue of love is the reason that he is able to break his marriage vows, leave his children, leave his family, and go and be with this other woman. Love takes it on the chin as the reason that this man will leave his woman. This first fruit of the Spirit makes, according to the song, his actions morally acceptable. Okay, here's one for all you baby boomers out there. Any baby boomers? Any baby boomers at all? Yeah, good. We have a few baby boomers out there this morning. You know, everyone brags and brags about the greatest generation. I love the baby boomers. I mean, they're tough. They survived the Cold War, the Vietnam War, and the disco craze of the 70s. I mean, that, that is one tough group, right? Okay, you baby boomers may remember a 1972 song by Luther Ingram entitled, If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right. The song tells a similar story, but this time it's from the perspective of the married man having an affair with a single woman. And in the song, he rhetorically asks these questions. Am I wrong to fall so deeply in love with you? Knowing I got a wife and two little children depending on me too? Am I wrong to hunger for the gentleness of your touch? knowing I got someone else at home who needs me just as much? And are you wrong to give your love to a married man? And am I wrong for trying to hold on to the best thing I ever had? And then the singer, after asking these rhetorical questions, then has the following revelation, which is the title of the song, If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right. He says if his actions are wrong, he's, uh, he is just absolutely fine with that. He doesn't want to be right. His moral choices are justified by love. The first fruit listed in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, let's bring in you millennials and Gen Zers for just a moment. Any, any in here? I think there are actually lots of millennials and Gen Zers in here. You guys absolutely get a bad rap. You know that, don't you? Everyone calls you demanding and entitled. It's not true at all. You just want what you want, when you want it, and you don't have to work for it. <laughs> and, and I would tell you Gen Zers and, and millennials that I would give you something from pop culture, but I don't know any of it these days. After 2009, when my first child was born, I completely lost touch with pop culture. I know there is some female singer who's made billions of dollars and dates a professional football player, but at some point she's going to shake him off, shake him off like the others. 
Other than that, I'm clueless. So let me bring in a contemporary issue rather than a song. Several years ago, you may have seen these yard signs expressing a secular creed. Did you see these go up really at the beginning of COVID? You saw a lot of these signs in yards. It started with, I believe, and then it had several phrases, including the phrase, love is love. I believe love is love. Okay, first of all, that statement is semantically meaningless. You cannot use a word to define a word. Air is air, the sky is a sky, a tree is a tree. It makes no sense. However, even though it makes no sense, that aside, I think I know what they mean by that statement, which is any kind of relationship should be morally acceptable because love is love, regardless of who the people are, as long as they declare their love for one another, then their relationship should be morally acceptable in our society. Okay, let's expand on that for just a minute. This creedal statement that says, love is love. Here's what they're saying. A sexual relationship before marriage, it's fine as long as two people love one another. A sexual relationship outside of marriage, it's fine as long as two people say they love one another. Our relationship between three people, a throuple, it's fine as long as they all declare their love for one another. Between four people, between five people, any relationship is acceptable. A same-sex relationship, a same-sex relationship with multiple partners, as long as love is the foundation then it's morally acceptable, right? According to this creed. Love, the very first virtue in the list we call the fruit of the Spirit is the justification for all of these actions. Our culture has such a mixed up view of love. And it's understandable. We hear the word love thrown around all the time. Think about music. Think about over the decades, all the songs that you've heard about love. Lionel Richie and Dinah Ross sang about their endless love, while Peter Cetera did it all for the glory of love. Poor Robert Palmer claimed that he was addicted to love, while the band Foreigner said they want to know what love is. Remember Meatloaf? He would do anything for love, <laughs> except for that. Huey Lewis crooned about the power of love. Bachman Tur Turner Overdrive said that any love is good love. Air Supply, quite sadly, was all out of love, while Phil Collins had a groovy kind of love. Tina Turner asked the question, what's love got to do? Got to do with it. And the Jay Giles band just grew tired of the whole thing and declared, love stinks, let's just move on. We hear this word thrown around so much that we've become just numb to it. Or maybe we've just kind of cheapened it. We've limited love to this emotional feeling that at the end of the day is really a conditional love. I will love you 
as long as you make me feel this way. I will love you as long as you continue to be beautiful. I will love you as long as you're interesting to me. As long as you make me laugh, then I will love you. However, when I feel differently and the feeling is gone, well, then it's time to look for another love. When Paul described this trait in his list that we call the fruit of the Spirit, he did not have in mind this emotional, conditional kind of love. In fact, if you've read ahead on the chapter for today, you know that in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, there were a number of different words that we translate as love. One of those words is the word eros, which is the root of our word erotic, but it really was more of a uh, romantic kind of love. Uh, when the Greeks used the term eros, it, it was used to describe a love between two people that was a romantic love. And it's actually a kind of love that the Bible praises as a gift from God. God allows a man and a woman, a boy and girl, to fall in love with one another. And it is this wonderful gift with these exciting feelings. Now, that word eros is not used anywhere in the Bible, but the concept behind it is, and it is praised when it is rightly directed. However, that's not the word for love that Paul used. Uh, again, if you've read the chapter, you know there are a couple of words that we find in the New Testament. One is storge, which is a family love or a fraternal love. Uh, phileo is, can be used as either a love between friends or an enjoyment of something. You can phileo a certain food. You can phileo a certain sports team. I just love that team. But neither one of those words were the words was the word that Paul used. Paul used the Greek word agape to describe the love that is produced by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you grew up in church, if you've been in church for a long time, that word is likely familiar to you. You've heard the term agape used before. But when Paul used that term with the Galatians, it was a unique term. It caught them off guard. In fact, the word agape was rarely used outside of the New Testament, but used often within the New Testament. Paul and the other writers in the New Testament seized this word and used it to describe a love that transcends romantic feelings, that transcends family ties, that transcends a passion for a food or a team or an activity. Agape is a type of love that does not change regardless of the actions of another. Agape is an unconditional love. In fact, let me give you the best definition that I've been able to find on agape love. You'll see this on your message map. You can fill in these blanks. Agape love acts in the best interest of others unconditionally, meaning regardless of who they are, willfully, regardless of how you feel, and sacrificially, regardless of what it costs. This is a type of love that is impossible to live out naturally. Eros love is very natural. In fact, it is 
the reason that we say people fall in love. It takes no effort to fall. You just give in to gravity. It does all of the work. And again, it is a wonderful gift of God. Romantic love is a wonderful gift of God, but it is not the word that Paul used here. This love is unconditional. It is willful. It is sacrificial, and it is impossible for us to do it on our own. None of us in this room can point to agape love and say, yeah, that's me. That's how I've loved all the time. I am always able to love people unconditionally, willfully, and sacrificially. This is a kind of love that can only be created within us by God. It is not a natural fruit. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit working on our character. In other words, you cannot be someone who is not a follower of Christ and love in this way. Only when the Holy Spirit indwells in us can we truly love with an agape kind of love. Okay, so let's break down this definition. If you've got your message map, you can see these listed on there. Uh, The first characteristic of agape love is that it is unconditional. I want you to notice the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, which was part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And in this sermon, Jesus spoke these words said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I think that this is one of the most convicting sections of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus gets to this part, he says, love your enemies And in fact, he he later asks this question and says, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even those outside of the church, even those far from God, they do that. Even those whom the Bible calls pagans are able to love those who love them back. That is natural. However, Jesus calls us to do more than what is natural. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts and works in our lives to give us the ability to do so much more than what is natural. In fact, let me give you a quote that you can tweet, or we don't tweet anymore. You can X, if that's what you call it. You can put it on whatever the the newest, coolest social media app is. Here's the statement. God works in us to do more than what comes naturally, but to do what comes spiritually to do what comes spiritually. Loving those who love us back is natural. Loving those who are our enemies, that can only happen through a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, let me qualify this just a little bit because loving one's enemies can sometimes be confusing to us. So here's what it is not. First of all, it is not being a doormat. Loving one's enemies does not mean you allow people to run all over you. There are times that you must establish boundaries. And if someone is sucking all the life out of you and causing you mental or emotional distress, you may have to limit your interactions with that person. Sometimes that person's a family member and it gets really awkward. 
but you have to set up healthy boundaries uh, for your own mental and spiritual and uh, emotional health. Secondly, uh, loving your enemies does not mean tolerating anything. In our culture, we've, we've sort of confused this idea of unconditional love with tolerating any kind of behavior and any kind of belief. Jesus is our model for this. Jesus loved unconditionally, but Jesus refused uh, to tolerate any kind of teaching and any kind of behavior. In fact, Jesus used pretty strong language to condemn those who were not teaching or living according to God's standards. Paul loved with an unconditional love and yet was very critical about those who were, who were teaching falsehoods or living immorally. Unconditional agape love towards our enemies is, though, acting in their best interest, even when they have not acted this way toward us. And again, this is hard. This is not natural. It is only through a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we are able to do this thing that does not come naturally. Number two, you can write this in, agape love is willful. It is willful. Notice the verse from 2 Corinthians that is on your message map. Paul wrote this letter to the church located in Corinth, and in chapter 2 wrote these words, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of of my love for you. We know that Paul wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth. We have two of those letters. He was constantly writing to this church because this church was constantly getting it wrong. He disappointed uh, this church disappointed Paul over and over again. The two letters that we have are corrective letters. You're doing this wrong. You're teaching this and it's wrong. You've not done what I told you to do. You need to correct this and correct this and correct this. Paul had to write to them over and over again. The church at Corinth was like the kid always getting in trouble at school, having to spend time in the principal's office or going to detention. And so constantly, Paul was having to correct the church. He likely did not feel like loving them. And yet he says here, even though I had to write these corrective letters, I did it out of the depth of my love for you. Even though you've acted this way towards me and you've disappointed me time and time again, I've continued to choose to love you. Historical documents indicate that Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, that Mark eventually left the Middle East and he went to Egypt uh, and there he planted a church in Alexandria. Uh, today, those Christians are known as Coptic Christians. And that group is likely the, the longest surviving, continually surviving group of Christians on the planet. Uh, they have suffered a lot over the last 2,000 years. They've survived a lot over the last 2,000 years, including in the 7th century when the Muslims invaded Egypt. Uh, today, Egypt is 90% Muslim and 10% Christians. The Christians are constantly under attack 
by those in their country who want them gone. Which is why about 10 years ago, I was shocked to read an article with a picture of Christians protecting Muslims. Uh, in fact, I've got a, uh, a pic, uh, I brought that picture. Um, you can see it on your screen. Uh, this was an event where Christians surrounded Muslims in Cairo so that they could pray during one of their prayer times. There were riots that were taking place in Cairo, and the Christians said, we will surround you and we will protect you so that you can pray during this time. The article said this was only a month after a bombing in Alexandria that was done by Muslims and it killed dozens of Christians. I guarantee you they did not feel like doing this. And yet, even though they were their enemies, they surrounded them and served them in this way. Agape love loves even when you do not feel like it. And there is no way to do that except through the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, here is your third point, and this is where we will close this morning. Agape love is sacrificial. Look back at the passage that Ryan read for us earlier. 1 John writes this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So you want to know what love is? You want to get a picture of love? You want to see love? Look at this hill we call Calvary. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus Christ hanging on that cross. And John says, you want to understand love? Look there. That is love. Then he goes on and he says, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So John here says, you want a picture of love? Turn on the radio, listen to a song, that'll tell you what love is. Watch a rom-com and that will tell you what love is. Read a romantic novel and that will tell you what love is. No, he doesn't say that. He points to the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus dying on the cross so that you and I might have forgiveness, the sacrificial love of Christ. He paints that picture and says, that is a picture of love. Then he anticipates the response that you and I will have. Yes, that's a picture of love, but I can never love in that way. I can never lay down my life for the sins of someone else. Only Jesus can do that. So I can't love with an agape kind of love. So why even try? And John says, no, no, no. I'm not letting you off the hook that easily. Take the principle of that. That was a sacrificial love. Just as Jesus sacrificed, we can sacrifice as well. And then he says, if you see a brother in need, if you see a sister in need, and you're not willing to lift a hand and help, I don't care how you feel about them care what your heart says, what emotions well up. Agape love is a love that says, I am willing to sacrifice. It's okay if it costs me something. That is the picture of love that John gives. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the name Brennan Manning. He was a popular author and speaker for a number of years. He died roughly a decade ago. 
Uh, Brandon Manning wrote a best-selling book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Great book if you've never read it. He spoke at a conference back in the mid-90s that I attended, uh, and at that conference told a story that has just stuck to the roof of my brain all these years. It's a story that he told uh, numerous times as he spoke at these different conferences about his best friend growing up, a guy named Ray. He said he and Ray just spent uh, day after day after day together. They were childhood friends. They were friends as they went through middle school and, and high school together. He said they would run around the neighborhood together. They'd play sports together. He said they even, when they turned 16, bought their first car together that they had to share. And they would go on double dates together and just spent hours and hours in each other's homes. They even decided to go and to register for the army together. And they were assigned to the same unit, and they served in the Korean War together. And he said there was a day that they were in a foxhole, and they were talking about their life back in New York where they grew up, and all the people that they knew and hung out with, and the good times they had had. And the conversation was just remembering all of those events. And he said in the middle of their conversation, a live grenade came into the foxhole. And he said his friend Ray looked over at him, and he smiled, and he threw himself on the grenade. It killed Ray, but it saved Brendan Manning's life. He said a number of years later, he was back in New York, and he went by to see Ray's mom. And they sat in her den, and they drank coffee, and they talked about life around the neighborhood back in the day, and they spent a lot of time talking about Ray. And at one point, Ray's mom looked at Brennan and said, you know, Ray really loved you. And for some reason, he said, he looked at her and said, did he really? Did he really love me? And she hopped up out of her chair, practically ran across the room to him, stuck her finger in his face and shouted, what more could he have done for you? Brendan Manning said it was at that moment that he had this epiphany. So many times in his life, he had doubted the unconditional love of God. Because of the things that he had done, he struggled with alcoholism his entire life. Because of all the different things he had done, he thought at times, you know, I don't think God really loves me. And at that moment, this question just burned in his brain. What more could he have done for you? What more could God have done for you? If you're a follower of Christ and you've ever doubted the unconditional love of God for you, regardless of what you've done, whether it was 10 years ago or whether it was last night or this morning, if you've ever doubted God's unconditional love, just hear the question, what more could he have done for you? That is agape love, and that is the kind of love that the Holy Spirit works in us.